All right. Good morning, church family. It's a privilege and a blessing to meet with you all once again. Anybody here a boxing fan? You here like boxing? I have never really gotten into it myself. Boxing, uh, as we are back in the book of James this morning, it's going to feel kind of like James has his boxing gloves on. So get ready to be pounded. <laughs> this may not be quite the feel-good message that uh, we all love to come to a Sunday morning for. But um, James is going to get to the root of uh, some of our issues today. And that root is, is pervasive. It's a root of pride. Pride. Pride is kind of like a malignant cancer. It has no place in the body of Christ. And yet, as we read the New Testament, we see the topic of pride being addressed often. And that's because it has so many different expressions. I love this quote by Kevin DeYoung. He says, pride is subtle. It's subtle. And it's shape-shifting. There is more of it at work in our hearts than we know. And more of it pulsing through our busyness than we realize. Pride is the villain with a thousand faces. So true. So true. Much of the book of James is also focused on our speech. Our speech is incredibly important because it provides a window into what's really going on deep inside our hearts. And because the tongue of our speech, it's like a nuclear reactor, right? It has the power and potential for great good, but also great harm. And as I look back over my own life, I can still recall with perfect clarity many of the most harmful and destructive things that have been said to me. They're still there. I'm sure you can relate. Words have the power to destroy one of the greatest gifts in our life, the gift of relationships. Relationships. Once a relationship is damaged, it is incredibly hard to restore. Proverbs says that a brother offended is harder to be won than it is for an army to capture a city. And I could give you a litany of names of people that I know whose closest friendships have been severed in such a way that they will probably never be restored again in this lifetime, even within families. I'm sure you could too. It is tragic. This morning, we're going to read about two very different topics related to speech, and they they are both rooted, though, in the same soil, the soil of pride. The first topic is our propensity to take on the position of judge, jury, and executioner regarding other people, particularly in how we talk about them. The second topic is our habit of living our lives with far more autonomy than the Bible prescribes and subtly boasting about the things that we plan on doing with little or no reference to God, okay? 
These are just two more corrections in a long list of corrections in the book of James. Now, uh, I took it upon myself to count how many times or how many corrections there are in James. And this, if I'm correct, there's about 30 different corrections just in this one short book. That's a lot of correction. Nobody likes reproof and correction. So I'm really encouraged you're here this morning. But correction is its the Christian life, isn't it? We have a standard so high that we will never fully attain in this life. It's the standard of Christ himself. And thankfully, because we are assured that one day we will be perfect, we need not be disheartened by how far we still have to go. So you can open your Bibles to James chapter 4. I'm also going to have it on the screen for you because it's just a few short verses. Let's pray. Let's pray before we begin. We're going to talk about dependence this morning, and and we need to start with our dependence on him. Well, Father, last week we celebrated the resurrection of your son. And this week we're going to read about how to better walk in that newness of life that you purchased for us. Jesus, you said that by our words we will be justified and by our words we will be condemned. And that's because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So Lord, please fill our hearts with good things, things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, excellent, and worthy of praise. Make us a people whose speech is humble, refreshing, life-giving, and gracious at all times, and speech that consistently reflects our dependence on you and our deferment to your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. says this, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor. All right, so this was not a new concept to the Jews and Jewish believers. The law of Moses stated in Leviticus 19, 16 to 17, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, But you shall reason frankly with your brother, lest you incur sin because of him. Now, I have known people who have hated confrontation so much that they actually preferred to move away rather than to confront an annoying neighbor. They would rather move their house and all their belongings rather than do that. But as Christians, what should we do? Well, verse 7 or 17 says to reason frankly with them. Other Bible versions say to confront, rebuke, 
or reprove them. That's what we're to do. We had a neighbor years ago uh, who would always, even on weekdays, he would party late after work and then come home after midnight and practice his bass guitar to a very loud soundtrack. And our bedroom window faced his house. So we were losing precious sleep day after day after day. And my attitude toward this neighbor just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Now, I hate confrontation. I really do. So I I finally just wrote him a simple note, stuck it in his mailbox. And, you know, I waited. (laughs) I waited. And things seemed to get a little better, but um, thankfully he eventually moved away. So I don't know if we were doing something annoying, you know. But the command to not slander or hate your brother, it comes right before the love command in verse 18. Right here, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Criticism of others, it actually contradicts the law that we love our neighbors. So, so why do people slander, you know, and criticize and speak ill of others? What's, what's the motive going on behind that? Well, there's probably many reasons, like hatred, malice, envy. But personally, I think there's one reason that stands out that's very, very common, and that is they have what we would commonly call poor self-esteem. You see, for many people, the only way that they can feel better about themselves is to make everyone else around them appear to be less. They elevate themselves by lowering those around them. It's also a way to gain attention and status among your peers. Now, I've known people like this, and of course, I've been tempted to be this way myself. But once you understand the real root of it, you really have to feel sorry for these people because their identity is so fragile that they continually feel the need to prop it up and prop it up. Anybody who excels or is better than you at anything is viewed as a threat, as a threat. And so they gossip and slander, sometimes very subtly, in order to knock others down just a few notches, thus making themselves look better by comparison, at least in their own minds. If we as Christians just understood 10% of who we really are in God's eyes, we would never feel the urge to elevate or promote or draw attention to ourselves at all. It wouldn't exist. So just who are you? <laughs> Let me just give you a, a sampling by way of reminder. And these aren't new things, but we need to be reminded of them. We have been known and loved with a love that extends from eternity past to eternity future. A love that costs God infinitely more than any cost that has ever been paid. 
We are unique image bearers of the one true God in all the universe. And we have been bestowed with the greatest gift ever bestowed on any creature, eternal life. We have been chosen from before the foundation of the world, and we are destined for absolute perfection, the very likeness of Christ himself. We are desirable as the eternal bride and companion of the second person of the Godhead. We are going to inherit the entire world forever and ever and we shall judge angels. Anybody, you've all seen the movie Toy Story, right? It's kind of old. But do you remember what Woody had written on the bottom of his shoe? Yes, Andy's name. And this was more than just a sign of ownership. Andy wrote it there because Woody was his favorite toy, and he never wanted to lose him. He never wanted to lose him. The book of Revelation says that Jesus is going to write God's name on each of us and the name of the new Jerusalem and the new name of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus himself. Wow. Friends, the only status that you could ever imagine or invent for yourself that is higher than what you already possess is the status of being God himself. Let that sink in. Because if that's true, then all of our efforts to make ourselves feel better about ourselves can never even come close to achieving what is already true of us. Do you see a fellow Christian who owns more stuff than you? Guess what? The Bible already says that that you already own 10 trillion times more than that. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 22. I share this verse a lot because it's where we are at as a culture. Paul says, let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world life or death or present or the future, all are yours. That's present tense. King Jesus now owns the title deed to this whole world and everything in it. And because you are now an adopted son or daughter of the king, it all belongs to you. To speak against another believer regarding whatever, it is equivalent to judging them. And not only that, it's also equivalent to judging God's law. How? Well, it's feeling the need to put yourself in the position of judge because apparently the law isn't doing its job. Okay? You're taking, you're assuming that position. But let me ask you this when is the judgment? When is the judgment? It's not now, or even in this age. It's at the second coming of Christ. Read Matthew 25. Judgment occurs when the Son of Man comes in all his glory. That's when it happens, not now. Now, 
civil authorities and churches are authorized to make certain judgments, but we as individuals are not. And yet this constantly happens in the public forum and in our society, whether it's on social media or or interviews or even books addressing people's errors. I mean, Christian leaders are famous for publicly calling out other Christian leaders on their, could be their shallow theology, financial extravagance, doctrinal error, hypocrisy, abusive leadership, prosperity gospel, fraud, sexual misconduct, and on and on and on. Biblically, I think it's okay to warn Christians of all these very real pitfalls. But there is no need to attach those warnings to known personalities by name. Because speaking ill of another believer is comparable to bringing them into court with you being the prosecuting attorney and your audience being the jury. That's what it is. Even if the allegations are proven true, it's not our place to speak of them. Paul did on certain occasions, but only in his authoritative role as an apostle. Now, even psychologists have observed that people tend to be most critical of others in those same areas in which they struggle the most. Swiss psychologist Carl Jung, he was not a Christian, But he believed that, quote, although our conscious minds are avoiding our own flaws, they still want to deal with them on a deeper level. So we magnify those flaws in others. There may be truth in this. Do you struggle with pride? Then you're likely to be hypersensitive of pride in others. Do you struggle with laziness? Well, then lazy people are probably going to bother you more than other people. Of course, Jesus told his disciples to first take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your neighbors. In other words, you don't want to be this guy. I love this. (laughs) Don't be that guy. Let me just leave you with one more verse on this before we move on, because we have another subject to cover. Romans 14.4. And he's using the same language here that James does. And it's It's kind of harsh. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. Why? For the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, some Christians may fail you. In fact, they will. Just heads up, okay? They may forget you. They may disappoint you. They may really deeply hurt you. But it's not my place to slander them or judge them. To their own master, they stand or fall, and stand they will, according to God. Now, our next section of Scripture deals with another form of pride in our speech, And I think it's far more common than we realize. So let's read James 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it to him, it is sin. In other words, if you just read this with me, you've been warned. You've been warned. Now, when I was a kid, we used to play this game called Captain May I. Anybody here ever play that as a kid? Um, That's where I got the title for today. So so the, the player who's the captain stands across the yard, you know, from all the other people and at a distance, and he calls on each player by name and gives them instructions on how they're supposed to move. The, the goal is to make it all the way up to the captain. And they can take baby steps forward or giant steps, but before they do, they must say, Captain, may I? If they forget, they get penalized and they have to go back, go backwards. First one to reach the captain wins. Now, this is the attitude that God wants all of us to have throughout our Christian life. The attitude that says, Captain, may I? In the Old Testament, we see example after example of believers neglecting to, quote, inquire of the Lord. They don't do it. They forget, they neglect it. They don't inquire of the Lord regarding their plans and actions, and the result is always disastrous. I mean, people actually die. Proverbs 3.6 says, In all, all, all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. How many of us actually do this? I sure don't. And I think it's because our lives seem so much more predictable than people's lives back then. Think about it. In Bible times, they didn't have guaranteed salaries or reliable transportation or modern medicine or insurance. They didn't have any of those things. In contrast, all of us today, we are so competent and highly educated, and well-resourced, all of us, so much so that we only sense a need to inquire of God when, when things are really desperate. And so we live our lives as if we are in the captain's chair. We live our lives asking God to bless our plans rather than us inquiring him of his plans. I'm guilty of this. One underlying assumption here is that James is addressing Christians who are relatively rich, which I think all of us would fit that category in the world today. But these are people who are making extensive travel plans, most likely as part of the well-to-do merchant class. This time period was marked by growing commerce, and Jews were especially active in this. Many of them left 
Palestine to settle in all these Mediterranean cities that James is writing to in order to pursue financial gain. Now, James is not saying that capitalism is wrong. He's not saying that it's wrong for Christians to pursue profit. Nor is he saying that it's wrong for these merchants to make plans regarding their future and how they'd like to see their financial endeavors pay off. If you read this passage carefully, the real issue here that James is trying to address is the contrast between what people say in verse 13, which is, we will, and what they should say in verse 15, which is, if the Lord wills, we will. The first verse is a kind of planning for the future that stems from human arrogance and the faulty presumption that we are in charge of future events and of life itself. It's a sin of omission. It's a lot more subtle, these sins of omission. It consciously or unconsciously leaves God out of the equation. Okay? So let's dissect verse 13 just a bit and see why this statement is so presumptuous. Okay, first, he says, today or tomorrow. In other words, we'll decide which one. When we go is our choice. Then, second, he says, today or tomorrow, we will go. Maybe we'll stay. It's our choice. Next, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. We'll go to this town or that one. It'll be our choice. Next, and we'll spend a year or two years or six months. It's our choice. We'll choose the duration. We'll spend a year there. Or maybe we'll move around from town to town. We'll choose. We'll spend a year there and trade, or else maybe we'll take some time off. We'll decide. And finally, we'll spend a year there and trade and make a profit. We know how to make a profit and how much. We can make it happen. There's a lot in that one verse, isn't there? A lot of presumption. John Piper comments on this verse. He says, there is an operating belief that our future is knowable, it is durable, and controllable. James says that all three of those beliefs are false. Tomorrow is unknown. Life is a vapor. And you don't have decisive control over anything. Anything. You don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring, let alone months or years from now. You don't know for sure when you'll leave for such and such a town. And if you leave, you don't know if you'll get there. And if you get there, you don't know if you'll spend a year there or a minute. And if you spend a year there, you don't know if you'll trade or if you'll be flat on your back, paralyzed from a fall. And if you do trade, you don't know if you'll make a profit or fail completely. You see, there's an underlying arrogance and boasting in our plans that we don't even recognize. 
David prayed a prayer that God would help him to counter this kind of arrogance. Psalm 39, 4-5. This is the Amplified Bible. He says, Lord, let me know my life's end and to appreciate the extent of my days. Let me know how frail I am, how transient is my stay here. Behold, you have made my days as short as hand widths, and my lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath, a wisp of vapor that vanishes. God, let me know my transience, my frailty, my insignificance. James' warning here, it may have come from his familiarity with one of Jesus' parables. It's a parable in Luke 12, 16 to 21. He told them a parable saying, saying, oops, let's go back. Oh, I don't have that in here. Okay. I'll read the beginning of it. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you notice how many times the man makes reference to his own will in this passage? If you count it, it's five times. But this doesn't strike most of us as sinful speech because we talk this way all the time. But it's very reminiscent of another person's words found in the Bible. And that's Satan. In Isaiah 14, he said, this is God speaking of Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights in the, of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. How many times does Satan assert his own will here? Five times. Same as this person in Luke. Five times. You see, like the merchants that James is addressing, this rich man made definite plans for acquiring more and more goods, but all his plans were thwarted by his untimely death. You see, it's not enough to recognize that your life is uncertain and transitory. Even atheists understand that. What we need to keep ever before our eyes is that our lives are entirely in God's hands. Proverbs. Oops, back. I get these all out of order. There we go. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but 
The Lord establishes his steps. So we must keep in the forefront of our mind that this life cannot be properly understood apart from the spiritual realm and a God who is sovereign over every detail of our lives. Jesus epitomized this kind of submission to the Lord's will in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. He lived a totally dependent life. John Calvin notes that Jesus, Paul, and the other apostles, they didn't always verbalize this dependence in every decision that they made, but they had it as a principle fixed in their minds that they would do nothing without the permission of God. You see, we don't just tack on the words, if the Lord wills, you know, before or after our our statements and sentences as if it were some kind of magic formula. We don't do that. But God wants us to adopt this non-presumptuous attitude continuously in everything that we do. And again, planning was not the issue. We see people making plans throughout the Bible, right? The problem was they were boastfully assuming their ability to chart the future. And autonomy, autonomy is such an unconscious habit such a norm and such a default for how we live that we don't even realize that we're doing anything wrong. God does not want to micromanage you and tell you what color socks to wear today, okay? But he doesn't want us living in presumption that all our choices are our own either. He wants a posture of keeping one eye on him all the time. Band, you guys can come on back up. Let me just end with this. i ask you a question. Do you feel like you have any room to grow in anything we've talked about today? I know I do. But you know what? The things we've talked about today are not just about us. It's bigger than that. It's about our Christian witness to a very skeptical world. And we began this morning talking about missions, right? Missions, reaching non-Christians. And Barna Research recently conducted a poll on the top reasons why people question Christianity. Okay? Do you know what the number one reason was for those who claim to have no faith? Why they question Christianity? Religious hypocrisy. Number one reason. Well, what does that look like in the context of today's text? Well, when Christians preach on humility and grace and forgiveness and then exhibit judgmentalism and slander in any form, that's viewed as hypocrisy because it is. Or when Christians preach about living in total dependence upon God, you know, but then we live lives of personal autonomy and self sufficiency. Guess what? That's hypocrisy. 
We're going to end. You can put the title slide up. We're going to end with When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. This is so good because it is a song of confession and repentance. God stands ready and eager to forgive us. And he can take our greatest weaknesses and make them our greatest strengths. I've seen it. So let's stand, let's sing our last song as a renunciation of our pride and a declaration of our dependence on God.